It's not a sprint, it's a marathon. That was the reported assessment of a Ukrainian battalion commander recently describing Kyiv's counteroffensive against invading Russian forces. To be sure, the progress of Ukrainian forces has been slow and the human costs incredibly high. Meanwhile, more than 40 countries, not including Russia, met in Riyadh over the August 6th weekend to discuss the war. At this point, what are the strategies of the two combatants? Is time on Kyiv's or Moscow's side? What U.S. interests are at stake on the battlefield in Ukraine? And what happened at the NATO summit in Vilnius last month? I discussed these questions with two leading experts, retired U.S. Army Lieutenant General Ben Hodges and retired Rear Admiral Mark Montgomery. Ben previously served as Commanding General of U.S. Army Europe, and Mark worked as Deputy Director for Plans, Policy, and Strategy, or J5, at U.S. European Command. I'm Bradley Bowman, Senior Director of FTD's Center on Military and Political Power, filling in as guest host for Cliff May. And we're so pleased you're joining us, too, here on Foreign Policy. Lieutenant General Retired Ben Hodges, Rear Admiral Retired Mark Montgomery. Two patriots who have served our country with distinction, two of the most knowledgeable people I know on these issues, and two people I considered friends. Welcome to both of you. Thank you for the privilege. Thanks. Thanks much, Brad. So I thought maybe we could start with the war in Ukraine and U.S. policy there, and then maybe discuss the NATO summit and some of the alliance issues associated with that, and then maybe zoom out at the end on grand strategy. So lots to discuss, too little time. So with your permission, let's jump right in. Ben, I wanted to go to you first on the war in Ukraine. Starting at kind of the broadest level, what do you see as Russia and Ukraine's strategies at this point in Ukraine? Well, of course, Ukraine is fighting for their existence as a nation, not not just trying to stop Russia, but I mean trying to protect their existence as yeah. a nation. Russia, on the other hand, is trying to destroy Ukraine and the idea of Ukraine as a sovereign state. So, it, I mean, that's what it's about. It's a test of will and a test of logistics. From a strategic standpoint, of course, their objective for Ukraine is to get back to 1991 uh, borders, so restoring their sovereignty. Uh, they'll want to get back the thousands of Ukrainian kids who have been kidnapped mm. and deported. Uh, they'll want to see accountability for Russian war crimes, up, up over 90,000 at this point, it looks like. Um, and, of course, they need to be able to defend themselves in the future, which is whether that's in NATO or some other means, and, and they've got to rebuild their country. The, um, you know, there, there were a lot of expectations, maybe fair, maybe not fair for how the Ukraine's counteroffensive would go. Uh, many are saying, uh, that it's going slowly. Whenever I hear comments like that, I say compared to what? And I think of kind of our microwave culture here in the United States where we want everything yesterday and we don't microwave culture. I like that. That's <laughs> yeah. Nice. yeah. Um, you know, understanding that these details can change day, day by day, hour by hour at the broadest level. How do you think the counteroffensive is going? So uh, it's very difficult. It's very dangerous. They're losing a lot of people, of course. Uh, the Russians, uh, as badly as they performed the last 18 months, they did not waste the last nine months uh, putting in mind. I mean, they were exactly. smart yeah. in that. And uh, we would never send an American soldier or Marine uh, into a fight without total, total air superiority in every advantage. We wouldn't do that with any other NATO ally. So anybody sitting over in the Pentagon or anywhere else criticizing the Ukrainians, you know, they didn't do it the way we trained them or, it, you know, they're right. what? I mean, without <laughs> all the things that are needed. And so, um, yeah, and I have to admit, I was uh, hoping and thinking that might, things might go faster. Yeah. The Russians are doing better than I expected. Yeah. Ukrainians are having to adapt. It is a deadly, nasty fight. You know, Brad, I'd add that, you know, it, it's not, it's hampered. By U.S. decision making, and it's U.S. decision making mm. six and nine months ago, and six and nine days ago. The six and nine months ago was we've been very slow to set up the, uh, you know, the uh, transition to F-16s in their Air Force. You know, we have not even after decision was made, we've managed to, you know, as opposed to many other things we do in this war, uh, we have managed to very deliberately review and and delay, and I think at some degree delay this progress and, and create this condition. Where um, our close ally, we don't not only do we not want our own sailors and uh, uh, airmen, uh, marines, and, and soldiers not to have air power. We don't like our allies and partners to not have air power, and frequently that's what we provide. And yet, in this case, you know, we have not supported them. And the other one I'd say is, you know, you and I argued uh, aggressively for the um, ground-launched small diameter bomb mm -hmm. a year ago, about nine months ago. They yeah. agreed to do it. 
and 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 a baffling choice. They said we're going to do this all from scratch, from a procurement, from a um, you know from a prime, guaranteeing that the longest possible path to delivery. They have not been delivered, and then the six and nine days ago is this continued iteration of not providing attack them. So. They don't have the small diameter bomb that you know, kind of in the, in the nine to one hundred and fifty tactical kilometer. missile system or short range ballistic ballistic missile system that will reach farther than anything they have that can allow them to hit Crimea. Three hundred kilometers, good precision fire. So basically, the mid grade precision fires and the longer range precision fires are missing, and that you know really makes it tough to to cut down the uh, the Russian logistics when they reposition themselves. So I want to dig a little bit more in a minute on kind of the Biden administration's policy toward this and kind of this no, maybe yes dynamic that we that I hear you describing that's uh, perhaps uh, perpetuated the conflict and made it more difficult than it needed to be. Um, but uh, General Hodges, back to you real quickly. I just wanted to kind of get your sense. You know, you start to hear, I'm starting to hear people in the United States sitting in this safety and, and luxury here in the United States starting to say, hey, we're looking at a stalemate. You know, we're going to have, you, there's talk about track 1.5 negotiations and all these sorts of things. And those always kind of turn my stomach when I hear people having discussions without, about Ukraine without Ukraine at the table, honestly. Um, but, you know, are, are we just being impatient here or are we looking at some sort of a long-term stalemate or we just don't know? Well, the reasons to stalemate is 100% the fault of the United States in this administration. Despite the incredible good things that the administration has done, keeping 50 nations together, that's remarkable. Yeah. I mean, Fair. in short time. So a lot of good things have been done. Uh, the problem is the administration can't or won't correctly identify the strategic outcome they want. They won't say, mm. we want Ukraine to win. Because all these other things we're talking about, those are policy decisions. Right. Or policy indecision. The flow from that. You, you yeah. can't have a policy decision that's worthwhile if you don't have a strategy to which you can attach it. Yeah. You know, we spent 20 years in Afghanistan. We only had a clear objective the first year. Then for 19 years, we never had a clear objective. And so you can't have good policy if you don't have a clear objective. And so if the administration is not committed to saying we want Ukraine to win, which means 1991 borders, yeah. means you have to defeat Russia, yeah. eject them from Ukraine. And and if we're not willing to do that, then you say, well, you know, we can't give attackons because they might use them against targets inside Russia or we don't have enough. I've heard 10 different reasons. Okay, that's not true. I've heard five different reasons why we can't give attackons. Or I've heard, uh, go back to the discussion about the Abrams tank. I heard so many bad things yeah. about the Abrams tank. I had to wonder, <laughs> why the hell do we have them? Now, of course, these were excuses right. because they didn't want right. to do it. So um, if if the United States was to say we want Ukraine to win, then we would not be asking uh, how long will it take to train F-16 pilots. We'd have made that decision a year ago, and we would be pushing everything to them to help them win. So is it a stalemate? It's not necessarily going to be a stalemate, but if it is, it's a self-fulfilling prophecy mm -hmm. by our administration. You know, one of the uh, discussions that I'm interested in, because I think it has important ramifications, and I'd love to get both of your thoughts on, is this idea, is, is time on Ukraine's side? When you consider the political dynamics involved, when you consider the tactical, operational, strategic, and grand strategic uh, things going on here, is time on Moscow's side or Kiev's side? You know, I'll start and head it over to, head it over to Ben, but, you know, I mean, this is a tough one. Um, you know, if you'd asked Ben and I nine months ago, I'd have thought time was on Ukraine's side. But, you know, part of Russia being able to dig into these uh, well-secured defensive positions and showing, you know, slightly better operational acumen over the last nine months is that now when you start to think about a ground uh, a ground battle with no air cover, it basically comes down to who can grind out more of the opposition's people. You know, Russia clearly has a much larger um, you know, base of 18 to 28 year old males to pick from. Um, now look, that doesn't account for will. It doesn't account for the U S logistics support. Uh, but you know, it starts to be a much more level playing field. And so I think time and, and the other problem I got is I think the U S and your, you know, Ukraine has to keep an alliance together. Russia has to keep like in sync with Belarus. I mean, this is not, that's not the same challenge. Um, and, Ukraine, you know, Ukraine's probably greatest risk is the is um, is uh, Europe or uh, or uh, the United States becoming too war weary, mm. not of losses, obviously, but of costs. And so I think time is probably that that 
question is starting, that dynamic starting to shift a little towards the Russians. Um, and that makes me very uncomfortable uh, because I, I think a, a negotiated settlement is not in the long-term interest of Ukraine. Uh, a negotiated settlement is not in the best interest of the United States. Um, these well-meaning, smart people that are over there now trying to work a 1.5 or whatever or other so-called realists here still, after all this time, do not understand who Russia is. <sighs> the idea that somebody you can spin a real style just a little bit and the Russians, we won't provoke them, you know, are incredibly naive. You mean if we don't make lots of concessions to Putin, he won't appreciate that and, 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 and reciprocate in good faith to I'm our I'm having a hard time finding uh, one page of evidence. <laughs> <laughs> of where this has ever worked with Russia. I mean, zero. And, and I don't understand it. And, yeah. um, you know, it's, it sounds brutish, but it's true that they only respect strength. Now, they will scream and holler, you know, the Ukrainians are terrorists because they launched a rocket against the Kerch Bridge. Oh, my goodness. Yeah. Um, you yeah. know, but yeah. that's— Take a look at what's happened we, in Odessa Oblast. We, we know who they are. And, and yet, still, good, well-meaning people— think that somehow if we don't do this, the Russians won't be provoked. And, that, and the, so the absolute yeah. naivete and lack of understanding of who they are and what's required is uh, astounding to me. Now, to your specific question of time, uh, the Ukrainians are not going to stop. I yeah. mean, they, they're not going to stop. They know what it's like to be under Russian control. They know what their future looks like yes. um, with Russia. And so uh, this is going to continue. The Time the clock with U.S. support, obviously, and, uh, and European nations have uh, elections coming up as well. Mm. I think that uh, our political leaders misjudge the American public. Mm. Uh, usually, um, when you if you take the time, if you can articulate to people where I'm from in North Florida or in Iowa or in California or up in wherever, the Upper Peninsula of Michigan, if you explain, hey, this is why this is important, then most people say, "Oh, okay. Well, let's 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 get it done then." And it's that's the hard thing. That's yeah. that's the hardest thing to do is lay out what it is we're trying to accomplish and why it matters. Let's go, if I may. I, I, I was going to go to some version of that. Let's since you said it and you said it so well, let's go right at that. I was on a uh, talk radio show a few days ago, and and the host brought a particular perspective that frankly sounded a lot like Putin's talking points, and and uh, he had and uh, which is disconcerting to me. Um, and he was setting up what I thought was a false dichotomy between securing our own border. You know, why should we care about border? You know, you've heard this a million times. We've all heard it a million times. You know, hey, why should we care about borders in Eastern Europe when we can't even secure our own borders? And he says, I'm focused on America's interests. And I, and I pushed back on that, said our core American interests are at stake in Ukraine. This is not charity. This is a wise investment. It seems to me to, to abuse Clausewitz's terms of center of gravity and make the physicists angry. I, I see two centers of gravity here. There's the will of the Ukrainians to fight. I have no concern about that because those closest to the bear understand that the, the Russian bear understand that it's a carnivore, <laughs> right? Uh, and and uh, the second center of gravity, I think, is um, Western and primarily American support for Ukraine. I think Putin understands that. And, he, and we've seen some erosion on the right, frankly, in this country regarding support for Ukraine. And I think some of these arguments that put forward that this is charity and not a wise investment and go to that. How would you both answer the following question? What are the core U.S. interests regarding the outcome in Ukraine? Why should someone in Florida, Iowa, or California care about the outcome in Ukraine? So I'll give you three right now. Okay. First of all, what's happening in Ukraine in the Black Sea is not just about Ukraine in the Black Sea. Uh, the Chinese are watching very closely to see how serious we are about protecting the so-called international rules-based order. So what does that mean? Respect for sovereignty, uh, respect for freedom of navigation, uh, respect for human rights, respect for international agreements. Every one of those things affects every American business. So when you, when you talk about, you know, why does it matter? And if you say, well, it's about international rules-based order, I mean, that sounds like social science Political science, right, gobbledygook. Right, okay, right. but when you break it down, you say this is about sovereignty, about borders, respect for borders. Every American cares about that. Um, every American household there is has something in that house that came from overseas on a ship. That's only possible because the world's greatest navy has always helped enforce freedom of navigation, and there are laws about that. That's that's what's at stake. Respect for international agreements. All right. If if nations don't live up to agreements about arms control, about nuclear weapons, about uh, authorities, about how to do things, 
transparency of transactions, that affects America's uh, economy. That affects every single American citizen. And then finally, Europe's security and stability. Biggest trading partner for North America, European Union. Uh, our economic prosperity depends entirely, not entirely, significantly on Europe's security, uh, prosperity. And European prosperity depends on European security and stability. There are millions of refugees in Europe now that came from Ukraine. That's not good for anybody's prosperity. So this absolutely matters to us. Well said, Mark. How would you answer that question? Why should an American in Iowa care about the outcome in Ukraine? We have to take a look. You know, the United States is a uh, a, comp- a country whose economic productivity uh, and viability is based on interna- on a successful management of the international economic trade and finances. We profit, you know, crazily, you know, if North Korea trades with Iran, U.S. companies somewhere make some money. Now, in that case, it's illegally, but, you know, that we are involved in all trade, whether it's, it's you, know, merc- you know, in terms of the shipping, the insurance, the financing the capital investment, you know, we're a part of this international economy and we benefit from it. If it's very simple, if Russia is able to unimpeded take Ukraine and then begin to train its authoritarian sites on other places, first of all, and we'll later talk about China and Taiwan, but it will enable that, that uh, rubric as well. But, you know, the, the Russian ability to limit European economic growth and development is significant. And, you know, we have chosen a spot now. They have chosen a spot where we're going to kind of fight this out, where we're going to say, no, your vision of a non-transparent, non-rules-based authoritarian system will not dominate Europe. And it's going to be here. We've always had this this confrontation. We had it that, you know, I know it's hard for us to think about this, but this is an extension of the confrontation of the 1950s, 60s, and 70s during the Cold War. And we have to meet them here. And look, we're doing this on the cheap. You know, we've, you know, I think it's now at the number of 95% of active Russian, you know, fighting first line brigades have been significantly decimated or destroyed by their combat experience in Ukraine. The Ukrainians are doing significant damage to the Russian army and its long-term viability. Um, They are expending a lot of their cruise missiles and ballistic missiles. This has been, I I hate to say this because, you know, it hasn't been cost effective for in terms of Ukrainian blood and treasure. But it has been cost effective in terms of U.S. blood and treasure. We are doing the right thing. And the final thing I'll say is we are a country that's, that I think is, you know, that has a commitment to democracy and transparency in the world. And it does matter. And Putin is an evil son of a bitch. And if we allow him to go here, Moldova's next, Georgia after that, then eventually the Kaliningrad, the, the bridge, you know, the uh, land bridge into Kaliningrad and the Baltic states. And look, he is a rapacious autocrat. We have to confront him somewhere. You can confront him now at the at the highest level of resilience and the lowest cost, or you can confront him later, you know, in a NATO Article Five that'll end that could end up in a nuclear exchange. We're doing the right thing. We're just as Ben and I have said, maybe not doing it well. Right. And other rapacious autocrats and thugs are watching to determine whether they too can accomplish their political objectives with military force. And and let's not forget, and you both are students or experts in history as well. We had two world wars start in Europe and in a 30-year period, and those involved trying to redraw international borders with military force. And if the thugs think they can do it, they'll do it. And the only thing that stops them is, is power and military power, often usually led by the United States, I would say. Um, okay, we talked about a little bit earlier kind of about the, what the Biden administration is doing uh, well and not so well. And, and I, as always, I always want to call bottles and strikes and be fair. Let me put something on the table and you guys can shoot holes in it or improve upon it. I would say that on balance, this has been one of the most impressive security assistance efforts in, in recent years on, uh, for the United States. I believe this administration was slow in starting. But once it got started, particularly after the, the February 24th massive reinvasion, they've moved pretty quickly but we, and impressively, but we have seen this no, maybe, yes on every major platform. Uh, and, and, and so what do you think I have right or wrong there? And if you could have like this administration make one or two decisions right now to help Ukraine, what would you say? Either one of you. So uh, it is impressive. I mean, the fact that 50 nations continue to contribute things. I mean, Germany is the number two contributor. Uh, nobody in Moscow or Berlin would have predicted that uh, a year and a half ago. Uh, France has become increasingly muscular. UK has been a leader. So lots of nations uh, are 
giving up a lot of capability to help Ukraine. And, and as you mentioned it earlier, the Baltic countries, I mean, they're the ones that are, they can feel the heat. They know the risk. And yet they're like the Estonians gave all of yeah. their artillery yeah. to Amazing. Ukraine because yeah. uh, they understand what's at, what's at stake here. And if Ukraine is not successful, um, having said that, the uh, this incremental decision making process flows directly from the fact that there is not a strategy. There is there is not a clearly defined end state. So then policy decisions are made uh, piecemeal. Not dismissing how difficult and challenging this is. I, I get it, but um, we went a long time before we started putting money down to increase ammunition production. We talked about who don't have enough, but you know, defense industry they're not charities. They have thousands of employees. And very sophisticated supply chains, you have to put money in there to make them to get them to increase, which they have done. Artillery ammunition production, uh, for example, um, I can remember in the beginning there was discussion about the the risk, the perceived risk is of giving Stinger. All right, you know, oh, if we give Ukraine Stinger and a Ukrainian shoots down a Russian helicopter with an American-made Stinger, it might provoke the Russians. Holy hell! I mean that, but that's. Now, so we've been climbing the stairs, and now you know we're way past Stinger. Working in the Senate, I rem- uh, during the Obama administration years, I remember hearing those arguments quite a bit. Why we couldn't give a, a javelin to Ukraine? You know, I, 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 Mark, how would? Well, I, first, I agree. I think you have to go all the way back to about to 2014 in the aftermath of Crimea. Um, you know, uh, officers like myself and Ben Hodges are sending in pretty strong, um, uh, you know, uh, summaries of what was needed to properly protect uh, Ukraine. And the Obama administration just could not get past the idea of giving kinetic equipment. You know, um, it's kind of funny when we made, when people made fun of Germany at the very beginning of the war for offering helmets, I think, you know, the mayor. Appropriately, said I'd say. Um, you know, I was thinking to myself, well, that was us, you know, yeah, yeah, uh, yeah, eight years enough. ago. Yeah. But then, you know, the Trump administration, although they did deliver some javelins, also stumbled uh, through their four years because Ukraine became kind of a political hotspot for other reasons. And then when the Biden administration came in, they did not do a good job in 2021 deterring. They had access to a lot of intelligence that told them we'd, we'd had late leave behind gear, two consecutives of pod, big Russian exercises where they left their gear behind in Belarus and Russia uh, down in the southern border near Ukraine. Uh, you had all these indications and they did not make those investments. And when you think about how deterrence works, deterrence works when you invest a lot of money before the event, not after. And so now fast forward, I do think starting in February of uh, 2022, and in fact, in the two months leading up to that, they did a good job, whether it was in cyber resilience through Hunt Ford operations, uh, the provision of some more kinetic gear up to a billion dollars in that little three-month period. Uh, and then obviously since then with, you know, um, you know, 40 plus billion dollars of, of delivery of, uh, of kinetic weapons now. But I'm with Ben, this, this kind of, um, this uh, th- three steps forward, two steps back approach and, uh, you know, and slow delivery of weapon systems is killing us. And we've already mentioned small diameter bomb and attackums, but those are the two that really stick in my craw right now. Makes sense. Uh, ben, uh, I hear a lot of people are critical of support for Ukraine. I hear them saying, well, those Europeans, what are those Europeans doing? They're not doing very much. You know, they're, they're free riders, if you will. I, I really respect your experience and depth of knowledge on our, on our European allies. Uh, and so I'd love to, if you're willing, hear from you. Uh, who who among our European allies really do you think are punching above their weight in terms of helping Ukraine and who who could do better? So uh, I think it's useful to keep in mind that whether or not any European country spends one pound, euros, lottie, or krona is not relevant to our strategic interests. I mean, we still need Ukraine to be successful for all the reasons that we've been talking about here. So even if they don't, right. we still need that. Uh, and the access that the United States has for all of our interests, and not only in Europe, but in the Arctic, in Africa, in the Middle East, a large part of that is because we're able to base out of European bases, air, land, sea, headquarters, you name it, intelligence sharing, you name it. So I, I would keep these two things separate. Mm. Now, you know, too, tough luck, Ukraine. We're not going to send anything else because Germany's not doing <laughs> enough. Okay, that's right. I, I think that's right. a juvenile way to think about it. Having said that. Um, UK um, has uh, been in front of us on uh, the long-range precision strike capability with Storm Shadow. They came out of the gate first with tanks. Now, I'm 
I'm not naive. These things are not happening in a vacuum. I imagine there's some coordination going on inside the uh, Ramstein contact group, and I don't know how much of this is coordinated. But if the Biden administration says, you know, we're not going to provide attackums because we don't want them being able to hit targets inside Russia, the Brits and French don't have that problem. So they're satisfied with Kiev saying we won't use them against Russian air, base, air bases in Russia. Although I would be perfectly okay with that. The UN Charter says every nation can defend themselves. Anyway, uh, Germany, uh, this this has been interesting to watch. You know, I live in Frankfurt. Uh, they are really, really, really struggling with uh, decisions that they're having to make right now. Um, Chancellor Schultz, you know, lifetime SPD, Social Democrat. Um, what he's leading now goes against everything he believed coming up through the ranks. But Germany has realized that they can't talk about values and do nothing to protect those values. So, you know, the decision uh, not only of what they have provided, where they're the number two contributor, uh, also the decision to deploy a brigade permanently into Lithuania. That's astounding. Do you think this transformation that I'm, I'm really curious what you think? Do you think this transformation that we've observed in Germany and tell me if you think that's too strong of a word is durable? Is this going to stick? And five years from now, do you think the changes we've seen will still be there? Are they going to put their money where their mouth is? Well, nothing is durable. I never in my wildest uh, dreams would I have imagined that Republicans or even Fox news would be using Kremlin talking points, um, <laughs> you know, I mean, almost verbatim. So, so, you know, the party of Reagan, I never would have imagined that in my life. So what 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 is durable? But yes, there is. I think the Russians took for granted. They just assumed that the Germans would be so dependent on cheap gas and that uh, that they would still be able to. And there is a portion of German society that is still uh, what we call uh, Putin first air or Kremlin first air sympathizers. But most Germans that I know that come from a variety of different parties are sick and tired of all the things that Russia does. I mean, who are the two strongest voices on uh, getting weapons to Ukraine? Habeck and Baerbach from the Green Party. Hmm. Lieutenant Hodges would have never thought that the, <laughs> that the Green Party would be leading the way yeah. on providing weapons. Party. And then the last thing I'd say is that uh, I don't know, most Americans truly appreciate the challenge associated with a coalition mm. government. I mean, when you've got a hair-thin advantage, so you got the Social Democrats, uh, the Greens and the Liberal Democrats, uh, the three different parties, um, where the the Foreign Minister is from a different party than the than right. the, the Bundeskanzler, and she may or may not do exactly what he wants. That's that's the nature yeah. of coalitions. Hey, two quick thoughts. One, I, I would say the vast majority of the, of the Republican Party is using good talking points. I, I, I <laughs> but I also want to say, look, let's be careful on this. We spend. $2 for every $1 Europe spends on security assistance. That's true. And I, w I wish that number were more one-to-one -one and, and the Europeans are starting to increase a little bit while we're maintaining. But the Europeans are spending two-to-one uh, over us on financial and humanitarian assistance. So it, it is a balance. And, and let's be clear. I'd rather have our half of that deal than their half because our half is spending you know this money on security assistance it's not very little of this money is going to Kiev. This money is going to um, Arkansas, Texas, Florida, Georgia, where we build U.S. weapon systems. Which is creating the defense industrial base capacity that we're going <sighs> to need for the future, including potentially places like Taiwan. And you and I spent, and you know, Brad was in the Army along with Ben, and all three of us spent a career where almost every weapon system we picked up could have been as old as us. <laughs> but no U.S. Army soldier is going to feel that two or three years from now, because everything, I mean, the army is shiny new when it comes to javelins, when it comes to artillery rounds, when it comes to pallet, to MLRS, uh, multiple launch rocket systems, when it comes to the weapon systems and that they're using, including, by the way, M1A ones, although in those cases, M1A2s will be remanufactured. But we are modernizing the ground components of the U.S. Army at a pretty rapid pace right now. Great stuff. Let's transition, if I may, to the uh, NATO summit in Vilnius that occurred in July. Um, uh, General Hodges, I'm interested in your thoughts on kind of what were, you saw as the major or most significant decisions or developments that came out of that summit. It was a, I give the summit a C plus. Um, <laughs> okay. It was a huge missed opportunity. Wow. All right. uh, now, the number one objective of every summit is to maintain the unity of the alliance. And, and that, that's not a bumper sticker. I mean, yeah. it truly is 
what makes the NATO, with all of its warts and ugly babies and flaws, uh, the most successful alliance in the history of the world. Because at the end of the day, nobody wants to take on now 31 nations. When you combine the militaries, the populations, the economies, the uh, all of that, nobody nobody wants to mess with that. So preserving that, that's that's no mean feat. It's very difficult, and and they've continued to do that uh, under enormous pressure. Um, the uh, Turkey dropping their objection to, uh, or at least President Erdogan dropping his <laughs> right. objection to uh, Sweden coming to the alliance was obviously important, but the the celebrations were way, way premature. The Turkish parliament still has to vote, and I think that's probably in another couple of months. Uh, And Hungary still hiding behind Turkey. So the Hungarians have not. So so we're not done yet on getting Sweden into the alliance. So it's it's better than it was a couple months ago, but nonetheless, we're not there yet. Uh, The um, unwillingness to... Do something more concrete with Ukraine. I think the Ukrainians did not expect to get a formal invitation there, but I think they were hoping for something more. Most Eastern Europeans were also hoping for something that was more concrete about a future. But I will say the the language, the conversation, the thinking, the culture about Ukraine and NATO has advanced dramatically. And so um, I would imagine that a year from now, when the when the NATO summit, the 75th anniversary of NATO, uh, is held here in Washington D.C., that um, we'll be much further down the road towards a formal invitation. But of course, as you know, Brett, invitation does not equal a session. And so this thing that even the National Security Advisor said, "Oh, if, if we invite Ukraine, it's instant World War III." That's that's not true. It ask Sweden how. You know, how long does it take from invitation to a session? And then finally, uh, a thing that did not get the publicity it should have, but I think is maybe one of the most important things. And uh, Admiral Mark Montgomery will remember from his experience at, in UCOM, U.S. European Command, how important this is. The SACUR, Supreme Allied Commander, got his war plans approved. Yeah. When you get the North Atlantic Council, first of all, that's all credit to General Chris Cavoli and his team adhere in the confidence of all the, the nations to get approval of plans and requirements come from plans. So it's not about 2%, it's about requirements. And then now you have something you can sink your teeth into and help fund to fulfill requirements. So so great. The uh, the Vilnius summit communique on issue on 11 July, um, you know, it had a couple elements and I just, let me just put these in there, Mark, and I'd love to hear your response, however you want to respond. Paragraph 11 Quote, Ukraine's future is in NATO. Okay, that's nice. We've been saying something like that since Bucharest, right? <laughs> right. And then we will be, quote, we will be in a position to extend an invitation to Ukraine to join the alliance when allies agree and conditions are met. I mean, that's about as vague as one could get, I, I would think. Um, on a positive note, I would say there was a commitment about making the 2% of gross domestic product a, a floor rather than an aspiration. We have seen improvements on defense spending, still some more work to do there. And then getting to your but last- that's, That's spending. That's spending for what? So right, spending for what exactly? The requirement exactly is, more, is so important. Tying, the, having the plans, and then like you said, tying requirements to those plans, and and then spending the money to build the industrial base to resource those requirements. Exactly right. And uh, you know uh, the um, the you know the communique was explicit on regional defense plans, on um, uh, organizing our forces, as you just said, around military requirements, improving NATO's command and control. Uh, transitioning some of these battle groups to brigade size elements, improved integrated air and missile defense, and the list goes on. Mark, what do you see as the big takeaways from the so summit? I, I agree with the grade. Um, and I agree, you know, first of all, the biggest takeaway was Jen Stoltenberg extending for another <laughs> uh, year because that was critical. I think our 15 months. I mean, Good I work never critical. goes unpunished. Well, no, he should also, <laughs> he should also enjoy the 75th um, anniversary. He's earned it. I mean, he's the second longest serving uh, NATO Secretary General and arguably the most um, meaningful. Um, and, and so there's a, I mean, there was some competition back in the fifties and sixties, but you know, he's been special. Um, look, uh, Ukraine not having to do a map plan. That's a big deal. A map is the military membership action, action plan. plan. Yeah. yeah. Membership. membership, sorry, action plan. There's a complete pain in the backside and extends any application process by three to four years. If you're not a completely modernized military, like, uh, Finland or Sweden, and so I'm really, I'm glad that's gone. That'll uh, be your attribute. And then the plans, you know, when I was at UCOM, the size of our plan, the UCOM US only plan, when stacked on top of his appendix, is probably six feet tall. 
the NATO plan was less than six inches, right? And maybe six centimeters. Uh, and now they have real plans. What was approved there was not a plan for a plan, which is what NATO has historically had, but in which you cannot build requirements from, but a plan where we can build requirements from and assign things. And this is all. The, the final thing is I did wish we did more on air defense. Mm. I have to tell you, if we've learned anything from this, it's that Russia, when in a pinch, will hit you with cruise and ballistic missiles till you say uncle, right? And and I just feel that uh, that you know we missed an opportunity here to really you know stretch our legs on air defense and the idea of rotating. Lithuania, Estonia, and Latvia cannot afford, and nor do we want them to try to spend their limited resources on on unique uh, boutique air defense systems. We need to rotate through larger countries where you can get economies of scale through that kind of defense thing. And we did not make that kind of, um, I don't think we made the right commitments there. And that's a strong deterrent move against Russia. Yeah. The, one of the uh, biggest takeaways for me from, from this war in Ukraine is um, how poorly set we are for protecting people and uh, resources and infrastructure in Europe. The U S army has one Patriot battalion for all of Europe. And it takes (laughs) that just to protect Ramstein. Right. right now, that battalion is split between Zhezhov in Poland and uh, somewhere in Slovakia. I mean, that that's it. That's all yeah. we have. Now, other nations have Patriot, but that's it's not about Patriot. It's about capability. And there, I, I underestimated the requirement. I used to think, okay, we've got to protect airfields. We've got to protect right. seaports and critical infrastructure. And then when the Russians use multi-million dollar precision weapons against an apartment building, uh, or a grain silo, it's like, oh hell, we've we've got to protect 500 million civilians. We're we're not we absolutely are not prepared. Our predecessors knew that though, Ben. In the 1980s, when we were both junior officers going around Europe, there was 23 Hawk and I Hawk battalions spread throughout Europe. When we had 450,000 troops in Europe, a a big chunk was Army Air Defense. As Hawk and I Hawk were laid down to rest, uh, there's been no replacement in the for that portion. That kind of lower cost, low, uh, medium range um, air defense. We don't do it. Um, one problem when the U.S. doesn't do something, our allies and partners tend to get bad at it too. Mm-hmm. So the only two countries in the world really developing it well are Norway and Israel. Israel because of a problem they have, and then Norway just because they saw an opportunity for sales. Uh, we desperately need air defense systems. And at this point, it can no longer be the U.S. alone. I'm so glad you both brought up integrated air and missile defense. That was a big part of the Vilnius communique, and it's been a, a long-standing problem that you both have been leading voices on. Uh, you, you, we, we, all three of us are familiar with the European Deterrence Initiative, where we're trying to put, I think, admirably trying to increase our pre-position stocks and other things there. But, you know, pre-position stocks not protected by air and missile defense, that's probably a problem. And, and you, you went, uh, General Hodges, you went to the point about assumptions in our war plans. And we've observed the deliberate and systematic targeting of civilians and civilian infrastructure by the Russians. So if you, one assumes that we would say the same thing in, in a war with uh, NATO, then that dramatically changes our requirement for air, integrated air well, missile defense. If the Russians are going to make the terrible miscalculation and actually attack a NATO country, of course, they're going to use everything they have. They're not going to be too selective in their targeting. They're going to go after for the same reason they've gone after civilian infrastructure and people now. Plus, their cruise missiles go to about a sixty percent hit rate. In other words, they go they go where they were supposed to go sixty percent of the time. So even if they were trying to contain themselves to military targets, we'd still be needing to protect civilian systems for that other forty percent. As we kind of uh, move to wrap up here in, in a moment, I want to kind of zoom out and kind of go to the grand. Not that we haven't been there a little bit already, but kind of the grand strategic level. And and, and my eye is drawn to paragraph twenty three of the Vilnius uh, Summit Communique, where they uh, where the all thirty one members uh, of the alliance talk about the People's Republic of China. And here's the quote. The PRC's stated ambitions and coercive policies challenge our interests, security, and values. Uh, the PRC employs a broad range of political, economic, military tools to increase its global footprint. It goes on and on, talks about space, cyber, all kinds of problems. To me, um, over time, both with the G7 and with NATO and with the EU, we've seen welcome, positive, accurate statements about the comprehensive threat from Beijing uh, I'm curious, what role do you both think NATO should play when it comes to dealing with the growing threat from China? Do we just need them to focus on on deterring Russian aggression, or do we need them to be able to to uh, do specific things vis-a-vis the threat from Beijing? How do you view that? I, I'll get started on this. So I'd say a few things. One, we need them to not be helpful to China. That's number <laughs> one, right? Do no uh, harm. Do no harm. Yeah. Make sure that you are not working dual-use technologies. And I have to be clear 
you know, uh, President Macron has taken over Airbus loads uh, worth, you know, in a visit to China yeah. of CEOs of companies signing deals. And a lot of those companies strike me as dual use technologies. Uh, you know, uh, Chancellor Schultz, the same, you know, that there is a natural desire. It is a, you know, it's 18 to 21% of world uh, GDP, you know, sitting there, you know, there's a natural desire to want to trade with it and want to have investments in it. The problem is, uh, you know, uh, China is a well-known intellectual property thief and uh, you will not protect your your intellectual property when you work. And we've been the leading victims of that. And we we know this better than anybody. Scars to show it. So number one is do no harm. Number two is, look, in a conflict with China, I'd expect two things from a, a very limited amount of military support from countries willing to do that and who have a capability. And honestly, the number of countries who have power projection, over 5,000 mile capabilities in in uh, NATO is down to two. You know, probably the, the UK and maybe a little bit from if France wanted to. But I'd expect the UK. I'd be pleased to see France. But on top of that, there's some unique capabilities where you might get onesies and twosies. But more important than that is their economic power brought to bear in a meaningful way and in a way that it's stated ahead of time it's going to happen because that's the kind of thing that deters China. If China thinks that they're facing 56% of the world's GDP or 62% of the world's GDP aligned against them in a conflict with us, they are not, you know, there's going to be an economic deterrent factor in that. So that has to be clearly stated and understood. That's why I liked what they said there, although you know, some of the actions of signatories of this, uh, you know, of the, of, the, of the Vilnius Declaration already, they, they act in a way that causes me to believe that they're willing to trade with China. I wonder if fear of a more consolidated uh, reaction from Europe in the economic domain is one of the primary things restraining Beijing from doing more to help Russia's invasion of Ukraine. So I have uh, thought for a while that China must have some influence on the administration. Um, that I have nothing I can point to. It's just you're trying to wonder why are we doing things? Why are we not doing things? What's China thinking about all this? For sure, as I said earlier, they're watching to see: Are we serious about the the uh, freedom of navigation? Are we serious about uh, respect for human rights? Are we res- are we serious about sovereignty? So they're watching to see: Are we really committed? So that's one way that Europe uh, and NATO can help by making sure that Ukraine is successful against Russia. That will send a very strong message to uh, to China. But um, I do think that the Chinese, while this so-called friendship without limits, that's nonsense, but they, they do not want to see the Putin regime fall. They do not want to see a collapse. I think they want to see status quo as much as possible so they can have uninterrupted access to cheap gas. Uh, and as the polar ice cap continues to shrink, the Chinese obviously want to be able to come over the top and, and they don't want any problems with being able to do that. And I think the uh, the government or the PRC Chinese Communist Party does not want the world to see a Putin regime collapse and expose all the vulnerabilities of an autocratic regime. Of This is, this is what it looks like. So um, I think there must be some conversations at some level somewhere that are saying, all right, U.S., don't provide capabilities that lead to the liberation of Crimea, which could lead to the collapse of the Putin regime. I think there's some either perceived or actual thinking along those lines. I can't, I don't know that for a fact, but I think China weighs in on this somehow. Now look, um, what specifically can NATO do uh, in, with regards to China? I agree 100% with everything that Mark just said. Uh, I don't know how much we need European capabilities in the Indo-Pacific region in terms of actual stuff, um, except in terms of shared intelligence uh, and sea power. Uh, World's greatest Navy cannot even accomplish half of what it's required to do right now. And I mean, the Navy that we have in Europe, the U.S. Navy presence in Europe is, there's no other way to say it. It's very, very small. And and so if you can have if NATO maritime power can take on more of these requirements to free up U.S. Navy or work with us like the Royal Navy does, even the German Navy has done this, the French have done this. Um, I think those are feasible ways to contribute. 
It's yeah, it's clear to me that uh, you know Russia and China are closer than they've been in decades. Our intelligence community said in its worldwide threat assessment a few years back to Congress that they're more aligned than they've been since the 1950s. We've uh, Mark Montgomery and I and others here at FTD have observed uh, the military exercises that Russia and China are conducting with one another, both in the maritime domain and, and land exercises. There's clearly some level of strategic coordination going on. Um, and so for me, that has some implications for um, our war plans and assumptions that we make about potentially only dealing with one major combat operation at a time. Mark, anything to add on that before we move on? No, I think that's that's pretty accurate. Okay, so um, curious uh, as we as we move to conclude here, what are you both watching going forward in the Europe Ukraine space? What are you going to be uh, keeping your eye on? You know, one thing I want to say is there's this perception that the Ukraine, um, the conflict in Ukraine, is stopping us from doing what we need in Taiwan. That's just factually wrong. I was going to um, ask you that. I'm glad you jumped. Okay. <laughs> and it's strategically wrong. Yeah. Factually, it's wrong because as uh, Ryan Brobst and you have d- documented here in some detail, the uh, equipment that we need, it, that we're using in Ukraine, is largely divorced from the equipment that goes to Taiwan. There are a handful of, of things that are useful in both places, javelins, stingers, MLRS, um, rocket launching systems. But I'll be, I'll be frank with you. We, those things were on back order with Taiwan for seven to nine years prior to the war starting in Ukraine. And and only the war starting in Ukraine caused us to overall increase production that allowed us to deliver. So we've delivered some stingers now to um, to Taiwan and we have dates for javelins and the MLS have been delivered. So honestly, in those few areas, things have gotten better because of the war. So that's just factually not accurate. Strategically, it's the much bigger issue. And Ben and I have been talking about this, averring to this the whole time. There's a there's a deterrence message here. If you let an autocrat roll over a tra- a, 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 a a a rules based democracy um, like Ukraine, um, you know what's the autocrat in Asia think about that? Uh, that you know that uh, that uh, uncomfortable state in in Taiwan you know that we see as a transparent democracy that should be allowed to choose the method of of its uh, you know of, of its autonomy and and so I just I'm very uncomfortable with this argument that Ukraine is limiting or or somehow restricting our ability to help Taiwan those two things are not true last thing is our you and I have written a lot about the defense industrial base. There is no way you know, El Rasms, the big, the long-range anti-ship missiles that we that are key to our victory, to, to any victory we might have in a conflict with China, were at minimum production rates for the seven years or six years leading up to the war, um, and, and now for the first time ever, are at max production rates. That 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 failure, that long-term failure that you and I both observed working in the Senate, had no, has nothing to do with Ukraine and the deplorable, unprovoked immoral, illicit invasion of Ukraine is prompting steps, as you just said, such as establishing multi-year procurement and cre- that is going to begin right. to solve that, hopefully, God willing, before 2027. And on seven different missile systems, we're now building max production capacity and increasing what that max production capacity would be. Three or four of them are Ukraine unique and three or four of them are Taiwan unique. So we definitely are benefiting from the rising tide here. So that whole argument is absolutely, you know, balderdash and should not be listened to. Balderdash, words yeah, not yeah, heard. Yeah. Often we're going to have to bleep on, that out. This I'm podcast. not sure we permit balderdash on this family show. Uh, so that's what you're watching going forward, General Hodges. What are you uh, intentional, vague softball here? What are you watching going forward? Well, um, it actually is a question you asked earlier about, you know, time. Um, do we, as we do every two years, you know, as we started approaching an election? As we approach an election cycle, and in this case, of course, it'll be a presidential election. So, um, how much impact does that have? I have to say, I've been impressed that the support on the Hill for Ukraine has been, by and large, very, very strong bipartisan support. Uh, I was at the Munich Security Conference. I listened to uh, uh, Senator McConnell come over there with a with the largest congressional delegation I think that's ever attended a Munich Security Conference, bipartisan obviously, and uh, and Mr. McConnell stood up there and said, "I'm here to tell all my European friends and everybody in NATO that uh, contrary to what you think you may hear, the Republican Party is 100 percent with Ukraine. We're with Europe. We're with NATO." I thought that was that got my attention. I mean that I thought that was impressive, and. Um, it was not really an issue in the midterms. 
um, I think a couple of people tried to make it an issue. It, it didn't. It didn't have any traction as an issue. And, and I, again, I think the president has the responsibility to lay out why this matters. And usually, if you can explain it to people back in your district or your state why this affects us and why it matters, then Americans, we're not tired. You know, we're not tired of that. Um, they, as long as you understand why you're doing it. So that's watching that. And of course, every European, everybody I talk to, what do you think is going to happen in the next election? They're word death. You know, one, one last question that I'd have is, you know, the, the United States, is, you know, there are a number of beleaguered democracies around the world and the United States is, you know, the one country they can turn to on a guaranteed basis for assistance. I think about Taiwan, I think about Israel, I think about uh, South Korea, and then I, I think I think about Ukraine. Those four countries need our. They will. They cannot defeat the person above them, or or not sustain an unbelievable amount of damage from the from the confronting authoritarian state with, without our our support. It's our job to support these countries. Ukraine falls in that basket of of four beleaguered democracies, and it's in our interest. But I also just think. I mean, I may maybe you know, and uh, I've got a young son going into the military now, and I absolutely. You know, I believe that, you know, his generation is as committed as our generation was, Ben, to the to this belief in, in trans, you know, supporting democratic, transparent states around the world. And, and I'm just glad to see that we're doing it. And I think we'll get this, you know, that we'll get another uh, Ukraine supplemental over the finish line in, in November of this year and give the Ukrainians a, another strong, solid year of support. Well said. Just uh, the whole um, deplorable invasion of Ukraine reminds me that investments in deterrence are far cheaper than dealing with uh, conflicts that we could have avoided by taking the right actions in advance. And that's what you, I, and, and others are trying to do with, with Taiwan, to learn those lessons and apply them in tangible ways. I want to thank you both for your decades, sincerely, or your decades of service to our country in uniform and what you both continue to do to inform important decisions. I look forward to connecting with you both again soon. And thanks to you all out there for listening and joining us here on Foreign Policy. Thank you for listening to this episode of Foreign Policy. If you enjoyed the show, please rate us, preferably with five stars. Ratings and reviews help give us visibility and the opportunity to reach more people who seek to understand the most critical national security and foreign policy issues. Also, make sure to subscribe so you never miss an episode. Follow FDD on social media and visit our website at fdd.org. There you can find research by FDD experts. You can subscribe to all FDD's products. You can catch up on any past episodes you may have missed. Finally, we'd love your feedback, your ideas, your questions, your criticisms. Send us an email at foreignpodicy at fdd.org. Until next time, I'm Cliff May, and you've been listening to Foreign Policy.